I do. I I do want to include. I don't think that the, the what I'm about to say should end up at the end of the episode. I just want to include it because I read it to Tarek off the record before, and I just wanted you guys to hear this too. Um, Elizabeth Shapiro, who eventually was like the director of the federal programs branch, she handled the civil trial that we discussed in our last episode. She also became a member of the prosecution team in this case. Um, she's in Justice's announcements of the sentencing and everything. Um, she later wrote for uh, a U.S. attorney's bulletin that I, I found that I was reading today um, a case study about the Holy Land Foundation case and about Hamas financing. And I think her opening paragraph is such a perfect summary of how the government viewed this case. So her opening paragraph is that in January 1993, a used car salesman from Chicago traveled to the Gaza Strip with over $300,000 in his briefcase. Mohammed Salah a Naturalized U.S. citizen born in Jerusalem claimed to be on a humanitarian mission. Shortly after his arrival, he was caught handing money to militants from the Islamic resistance movement known as Hamas. Right, so that's her opener. (laughs) And then she says, He was not, however, the biggest fundraiser operating for Hamas in the United States. That honor belonged to the Holy Land Foundation. (laughs) Right? Jesus. It's a total fucking smear. Their activity has nothing to do with this guy's activity. And her opener is to just try to yeah. connect it. Yeah. Well, the, the press release too, you know, that they put out. I mean, you know, like the trumpeting the, the the sentences where it's, they're like, uh, he's the cousin of a brother of a Hamas yeah, member. Right. You know, like, I mean, like you're putting this in the press release. You're, yeah, you can still look up the DOJ press releases when they put these guys away. Yeah. If you want some like very fun stunting on that has aged poorly, <laughs> yeah, it's completely thin. It's so yeah. attenuated. What was that screenshot I sent you guys earlier today where they described the El Baras evidence and it was like, what did yeah. it say? It was like El Baras. He was, unindi- was, he, was uh, he was he was the he was the associate and co- uh, joint bank account holder of an unindicted court Hello, I'm Tim, and welcome to A-Lab. We're joined again by Rhiannon from 5-4 to discuss the Holy Land Foundation case. Last time on A-Lab, we discussed the organization's destruction at the hands of the U.S. government in the wake of 9-11. This episode, we look at the fate of the Holy Land 5 and the further ways in which our government has destroyed civil liberties in the name of security. So I've gone through the requisite uh, number of grief stages uh, and I'm able to join part two of this yeah. episode. We, we had a woman on the podcast. Obviously, I was too distraught uh, to join the last time. <laughs> but I've, I've onboarded it and I'm fine. So welcome, Rhiannon. and thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. It's a thrill and honor to be the first woman on this, um, on this godforsaken, silly little show. <laughs> For the record, <laughs> suggested by me. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, oh, just, yeah. Andy, yeah. you know what? Let's In particular, Andy, going. thank you so much for your allyship <laughs> and support. We were actually going to have Hillary Clinton on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we thought that the position she might take in response to this case, probably not. Yeah, no, yeah. definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not. But, uh, yeah, congrats on breaking the glass ceiling. You're a girl <laughs> boss now. Um, That's right. 
So, you know, a lot of fun stuff happened in, in the first half of, of this episode, part one. Um, it's all going to get better, right? In a way. Depends yeah. on who you are. <laughs> right. That's true. <laughs> so uh, the Holy Land Foundation, this is part two, um, was uh, in our previous episode covered the uh, civil proceedings and the designation uh, that led to the shutdown of that foundation. Um, and we're picking up now. Uh, yeah, I think just to tee up a couple themes. I mean, we're in the early 2000s. 9-11 had just happened. Uh, the government was out to get scalps. And you what you see here is kind of indicative of the way that Muslims were treated kind of globally by the United States government uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, but I think this case is important because it shows it's not just something that was really happening, you know, over in Afghanistan or Iraq or out on a battlefield with with militants. It was happening to people in the country just because they were Muslim. Uh, and, you know, the government really was kind of utilizing a, a reticence on the part of judges to delve into matters of national security uh, in order to really ruin these people's lives, basically just for publicity and for, you know to get to get some scalps. No, these people's livelihood, their life work, you know, had already been destroyed. Right? Well, and their freedom too. Well, no, but we're, we're not oh, there yeah. yet, right? I yes, mean, true. Yes, uh, we're coming in coming into this part. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a part in the sentencing ultimately. Where uh, I can't remember who it was was saying like the one thing that gave me joy in my life was cutting checks uh, to these children, right? Um, and to 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 be able to send money back home and and to right some of the injustices that that we had left behind, and uh, so that's already been done. I mean, these guys have already had their life work uh, thrown in the trash, vilified, etc. Uh, and it's just gonna get that much worse. Yeah, and that that sentiment that touching sentiment along with every other thing that they do to try to show that they you know are acting in accordance with the governing rules or that they're not bad people will all be construed by the government and unfortunately apparently by by a jury as all just cover running cover for what they were really doing which was twisting their mustaches and um, hoping for more suicide bombings. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, in um, in preparation for just to kind of like jog my memory about details of this case and stuff like that, I saw in, uh, now I don't even remember where, but I saw somewhere that um, when, you know, these, um, the, when these men, you know, first sort of got together and decided on starting the Holy Land Foundation, um, they, <laughs> this is so ridiculous, they called themselves um, Samah, or like in English transliterated, that would be S A M A H, and that the government later said that um, well, that's suspect uh, right off the <laughs> bat because that's Hamas spelled no. backwards. This oh makes it, no, shit! This, this, <laughs> make, this makes it into the appellate decision. Of is that the, right? Of the ultimate criminal okay. trial. Uh, yes. And the, way, the way they describe it is, you know, they, they gloss over all the silliness of it and, and the obvious joke about it. And what they do is they go, they were speaking in codes. <laughs> right. This literal Glenn Beck this, shit. Yeah, this yes. proves that they were surreptitious and they were sneaking around and it showed intent to deceive. 
It's so it's so ignorant. I mean, first of all, Hamas is uh, is an acronym in Arabic, uh, you know, and so it doesn't even make sense that, you know, Arabic speaking people would turn around the English word Hamas and then make it something else. Also, Samah means grace in Arabic. And so it makes total sense as 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 something to call yourself. Anyways, um, just, you know, just another example of how um, sort of absurd, ridiculous, like almost 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 funny this kind of whole prosecution is um but but yeah at the heart of it is actual people's uh livelihoods their lives and it's incredibly tragic so we start in 2004 right uh and that's when abu Bakr and the uh, and the others get charged in the in the northern district of texas there's like hundreds of charges i think against them ultimately the, the, the star of the show aside from the tax things and all sorts of other stuff is the material support for terrorism statute which we talked a little bit last episode which has its root in the adpa and it's one of these laws that just kind of shocks you the first time you hear about it in law school because the scope of activity which could potentially result in tremendous criminal liability is extremely broad i mean right as you're going to find out. I mean, I, I would give you an example, but this entire episode is about to be a really solid example of, of why that's the case. Uh, even the government, uh, in, in its argument, you know, made it clear that none of these guys had actually done anything. And nobody's saying that the money they raised went directly to buy a suicide belt or a bomb. And I mean, like, uh, there's no allegation that anything other than, than some broad measure of financial support was pointed at organizations that were later alleged in the trial to have been perhaps uh, making Hamas seem uh, more warm and fuzzy than the government would have liked. Right? Yeah, right. Hamas can burnish its reputation and grow and boost recruitment because, look, they're giving out charity. These are, yeah. All these Zakat communities, they must be, uh, you know, because the United States prosecutor said so, they must be completely controlled by Hamas, thus the money is coming from, from Hamas. Maybe I'll become a suicide bomber when I grow up because uh, they gave me orphan money. Right. <laughs> right. The government, for their case also is essentially that because HLF and Hamas had a lot of connections, both personal, financial, and organizational, pre-1995, that mm -hmm. they were essentially tainted forever, uh, and that basically any evidence of them not having those connections continues to be a connection between Hamas and HLF. It becomes illegal to provide material support for Hamas once they become a foreign terrorist organization. Right. And that's in 1995. And so the summary of the government's case is that they have a bunch of pre-1995 evidence of connections and you know transactions and all kinds of stuff. And then they don't have so much of the evidence afterwards. But what <laughs> they say is, well, you have some lim you have some you you had a couple phone calls with the guys. Yeah. You kept donating to the same places as before, and since before you seemed to think Hamas was involved, you must have still thought Hamas was involved, and uh, that's good enough for us. And any steps that you took to disassociate yourself with Hamas, which were which were several, uh, that's all just running cover. That's all just faking it. Right, right. And Andy, you're kind of, um, you know, obviously like making it sound pretty silly, but it really is kind of this vague. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, as part yeah. of the uh, as part of the evidence against the the Holy Land Foundation um, and the five men who were criminally prosecuted, you know, the government claimed that they had tapped all communications of the Holy uh, of the Holy Land Foundation for, you know, the prior 10 years, which is 
first of all, um, a ton of time for the government to step in and stop things if they were actually materially supporting terrorists. Weird. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, for, for, for all of the government's claims that they had been sort of surveilling, uh, recording all of the communications of the Holy Land, uh, of the Holy Land Foundation over the course of a decade, the government did not allow the defense of any of these men to, um, to review any of those communications, any right. of those statements. Yeah, the, the the government decided which ones to disclose, which was the ones they wanted to use, and then everything else got like an unclassified summary or something. And what they said was, so what what the defense wanted was like disclose to us all of these statements so that we can review them because some of them might be exculpatory or whatever. And what of they course. said was, well, no, that might you know disclose some national security thing. We're going to withhold it on that. But here's a process. Why don't you, uh, various non Arabic speaking people? Why don't you listen to the ones that you have clearances for or whatever? And uh, and then you tell us which ones you want, you know, you want to get declassified so you can get them translated or whatever. Because they can't right. discuss them with their clients. And so what they say is, well, this doesn't help me. What I need to do is get context from my client about what they were fucking talking about in the statements that, you know, might exist in this collection. And then, uh, so it's just, they're just in an impossible position. They don't fucking speak Arabic. And what the court says is, well... I don't know, learn it. I don't give a shit. Uh, and then the appellate court uh, later, you know, skipping a little bit ahead, says, no, they should have just gone with the with the district court's process. It was a nice process. They could have worked with it. And the fact that they didn't is their fault. Right. And again, to be clear, I mean, these were statements that the, the defendants themselves made. So right, right. These are conversations that they were participating in. Would have been violated back then. Right. <laughs> right. 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 And the argument, the argument was like, well, we can't turn them over because, because the, you know, the defense made that argument. Like, well, what do you mean? They're presumably aware of statements they made. You can't be violating national security to tell them that they said something. And they're like, no, no, the method of understand the method of how we collected these could uh, violate, you know, could disclose some some sensitive national security matter. We mean a fucking wiretap. Like it's not hard to figure right. out how you got yeah. this. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. Should we go into the evidence or yes. like these witness guys? Well, but before we do, what, what, I mean, again, like the one thing that really bothers me about this and getting back in treasury factors in this case, right? Uh, but like this harkens back to some of the things we said about the sanctions and OFAC and the way it operates, right? Which is pre-1995, uh, there's no designation. In 1995, Hamas gets designated and they cease doing business with Hamas. They continue to divert money to Zakat committees and they still get hung out to dry ultimately which gets back to this sort of notion that well oh sanctions there's there's exceptions for humanitarian aid and there's this and there's that but the truthfully uh what the message is is once we declare you know hamas or something else to be no go uh, any contact with this region can and will be held against run you. don't fucking walk Right. right. I, th- I think to, to put a point on this divergence, um, we're recording this right after those protests in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably even by the time this gets done, it'll be a forgotten news item. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the embargo is in the background of, of the protests in Cuba because people can't receive goods, including medical goods. And the argument against that is, well, the embargoes don't have anything about medical equipment, so the Cubans should be able to get them. It's not the government's fault that they can't get or it's not the embargo's fault. It's not our government's fault that the Cuban government can't procure these medical items. But as you can see here, anybody who comes even close to coloring outside of the lines can get hit with not only losing their entire organization, but their freedom as well. Right. 
And it's, you know, know, we we stopped dealing with Hamas. Yes, but you continue to donate to these Zakat committees. Well, right. You continue to be Muslim. So and those Zakat (laughs) committees were necessarily upstream from people who also had views about Hamas. And, you know, everybody understood that there may be some relationship with Hamas in those committees. But are the committees themselves? No, they're not. Is the U.S. government itself also dealing with these self-same committees that were about to nail you to the wall for it? Yes, in fact, they are, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, so like, you imagine right. bringing oxygen tanks to Iran is not something that the government's going to allow humanitarian exceptions be damned. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, again, yeah, you can yeah, ship yeah. all the medicine and all the band-aids you want to Iran, but if one of them gets stuck on a, you know, a member of the Quds Force or whatever, then you're fucked, right. you know? And uh, so why even bother? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And just to make, I mean, it's it kind of feels, um, it feels like we're repeating ourselves a little bit, but just to be like as explicitly clear as possible, right? Uh, in terms of like what, where the aid was going and who was donating where, you know, the the zakat committees that were receiving uh, donations and charitable, you know, kind of goods from the Holy Land from the Holy Land Foundation, the same zakat committees were receiving aid from. USAID, the U.S. government. <laughs> yes. Right? And so exactly. the difference here, I mean, just explicitly and, and sort of uh, unabashedly, egregiously hypocritical, right? The During only all difference. relevant times for the conduct that they're challenged and for yes. years afterwards. For yes. years right. and for years after this prosecution. That's exactly right. And so um, not only sort of like unabashedly hypocritical, but also, you know, say like the only difference. Right. Like I can I, I, the, the government saying, you know, Americans can give uh, money to these organizations. But since you're Muslim, you can't. Yeah. For, I mean, from my mind, like lo- looking at that particular fact, just that USAID fact. I think that should be tantamount to – and this application in the material support for terrorism statute should just be per se unconstitutional. If you can That's show right. the United States government is dumping right, money right. in the same place, you have no fucking notice, right? You have right. no – it should be un, it should be constitutionally deficient notice because what are you supposed to do? Where are you right. supposed to look? Who's, whose conduct are you supposed to model to tell you that you won't be fucking prosecuted yeah. for this? And it's, it's not like this was CIA clandestinely – Funding yeah. assets. This was U.S. aid. This was right. the Public government right. version of this, the private function of this organization. Yeah, right. exactly right. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, the 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 you know, shipping aspirin to Iran and Kasim Soleimani taking one of the aspirin is a bad analogy, <laughs> actually, because this is even <laughs> stupider. Right. Right. It's, yeah. right. Because yeah. it's you sent you stopped dealing with Hamas, but you continued to deal with Zakat committees, which were clearly not designated uh, as terrorist organizations. You check the <laughs> list to make sure. Um, it's not that we're alleging that even then that money was funneled to Hamas for, by those organizations, but rather that that charity somehow because of posters that may have been on the walls and some of those uh, otherwise clean charities that you gave to uh, raise the estimation of the people receiving the charity from that charity of the Hamas organization it's somehow so we're not so sure. Right. It, uh, there, it, the, att- the levels of attenuation uh, <laughs> just beyond the fact that these committees were not on any list uh, just drives me insane. And it's, again, I hate to, uh, everything to me is sanctions, right? But I, I hate to keep analogizing, but, but this is exactly why you just, the only answer is never, never go there. 
No. Don't no, do any. Right. Bu- don't but, do any business. And we're going to revisit right. that by the end of this. We're going to yes. revisit mm-hmm. that after all of this to say like, what is it that these guys were supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, in order yeah. to in order to do you know in order to conduct themselves lawfully and I think the answer is after all this fuck it there was no there was nothing I mean like nothing. convert to southern convert to being a southern Baptist right. yeah so so I'm glad you mentioned the the posters and stuff on the wall so the, one one of the one of the people just to dive into some of the evidence one of the people that testified was this guy Dr Matt Levitt. Um, <laughs> He's awesome. I, I checked his Twitter. He's on now. Twitter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is he? Oh, that's the that's actually. We'll be yeah, talking yeah. about him later. Uh, yeah. So he was an expert witness who uh, wrote his dissertation about terrorist attacks that occurred during the Oslo Accords, both mm-hmm. uh, from Israel and from you know, violence that occurred both from Israel and Hamas during the Oslo Accords. And so he's asked, you know, what's your area of expertise during the trial? And he says, my area of expertise is Hamas, which is a great fucking answer (laughs) Um, but so one of the things that he testifies to is that he reviewed keychains postcards and posters of martyrs that you know supposedly glorified the quote martyrs activities i hope you listened to our last episode where we described the uh the martyrs issue that the word martyr isn't always being used as a uh you know a person who committed violence right but he so he so he reviewed all these things that were uh supposedly you know found in zakat communities or whatever which are zakat committees uh, offices or whatever that were supposed to demonstrate that the zakat committees were controlled by hamas and were uh you know a, a wing of hamas in some sense um and there are a number of problems with his testimony but but perhaps one of the most important ones is that the guy doesn't speak hebrew or arabic right so well, he's well, well. so he's reviewing documents <laughs> and supposedly interviewing people and like I, he so he has to turn right. He looks at the document and then he turns to the IDF guy next to him and goes, "What does that mean?" And the guy and the guy gives him a totally non-partisan <laughs> translation. <laughs> and he goes, well, and, "The guy and, next to him turns the turns the document over. He's like, oh, you 'Oh, you're actually looking at it upside down, bro.'" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So like, so like, he was asked on the stand, you know, what did you take? You know, what steps did you take to verify these translations that you were given? And apparently, the answers were a little thin. Uh, you know nothing, uh, and so one of the one of the problems with with the expert testimony is that you are not supposed to just be a conduit for hearsay, right. um, and the the judge is supposed to be a gatekeeper with that kind of stuff, and the defense does challenge this, but it doesn't matter at all. But you can't just come in and say, well, somebody told you know I talked to a guy who gave me the translation, and by the way, that that person perhaps is you know not you know, might have a partisan view right. of this conflict. And they told me what it means. And uh, so then I'm working that, you know, I, I'm interpreting that into my intellectual framework or something. And I'm telling you that it means that Zakat committees are controlled by Hamas. There's a lot of fucking problems with that kind of testimony. That's not <laughs> expert think? testimony right. at all. Right. right. It's hearsay testimony. It's fucking yeah. hearsay. It's just hearsay conduit, which is a classic move. I mean, it's a very standard move with experts. The reason yeah. there's a rule saying you can't use experts as a conduit for hearsay is because that's what people try to do all the fucking time. Right. And I was going to say, it's shocking that an expert witness would be full of shit. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so so that's probably the biggest problem with this testimony. However, so on Cross, on cross they do uh, something pretty clever, which is, you know, and I guess required. They ask him, like, so you're saying that – Zakat communities, Zakat communities, they have, you know, they're, they're all controlled by Hamas and they got these posters up and stuff. How, have you ever visited any? Yeah, I have. Okay, which ones? Bethlehem. Is that one of the ones on the list that they're in trouble for supporting? Well, no. 
Uh, okay, did you did you visit any of the ones that are on the list? Well, no. Okay, so how is this fucking relevant at all? Like, like right, how do you right. know? Right. He's saying, well, look, just aren't these people? I mean, it ultimately comes yeah. down to right. Like, aren't these? Yeah. Come on. You've seen one, you've seen them all. (laughs) And also on Cross, uh, just to bring it up, uh, they do go into some of the other work that he's done, which is essentially just speaking at APAC and speaking with other kind of (laughs) Zionist groups. Um, I was that was through the Al Jazeera documentary, so I really couldn't tell how much of that was them juicing it up that angle. but, I mean, clearly, basically the reason that he is this conduit for hearsay is because his ideology is essentially just to listen to an IDF guy and repeat right. it back to Americans. I think that's right. more or less his, his actual function in life. Right. Now, um, I would say now I would say in response to that stuff, that stuff doesn't necessarily get you excluded as an expert witness. Uh, no, but it does on this podcast. Co- it's, so, it's something – right, absolutely. <laughs> it's something you cover on cross. But some of the stuff we've been talking about where you just accept a partisan translation without attempting to verify it and essentially your understanding of the meaning of a document was just handed to you by a guy standing next to you, well, that guy should be here test- testifying. What the fuck are you doing here? Right. He's just the Mossad whisperer. basic rule of evidence right uh witnesses should be testifying about matters uh for which they have personal knowledge well Uh, if he's an expert he can testify to hearsay in some respect but right not if he didn't attempt to verify right not if he hasn't actually uh visited the places looked at the things verified the the translation that he was getting it would seem that his procedures are perhaps not reliable (laughs) if you visited bethlehem and then you concluded that all the other zakat communities were the same I don't. I don't know. That seems questionable to me. That the judge should perhaps gate, perhaps gatekeep, or maybe you have a relevance problem. I don't know. Anyway, he fucking sucks. We'll come back to him because I have a problem. I have a problem with the tweet I found of his today. <laughs> oh, so uh, Dr. Levitt also um, in his testimony says that part of the way that the Holy Land Foundation was supporting or encouraging terrorism is by sort of setting the standard that the children of suicide bombers would receive sort of like economic support aid, right? Like mm-hmm. you're setting up this kind of uh, insurance system by which the children of um, people who, uh, you know, commit violence will be provided for in the future. Um, And, you know, uh, we've talked about the, (laughs) you know, we've we've talked about the levels of attenuation. Um, Yeah, there's some there's some intellectual uh, attenuation there, some some intellectual acrobatics to get there. But I don't know. Did you guys uh, read um, Miko Pellid's book about? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, part uh, Miko Pellet um, is the son of actually a famous um, Israeli general, um, yeah. but uh, Pellet himself is an anti-Zionist, and he wrote a book investigating um, investigating the criminal prosecution of the Holy Land Five, and um, he says um, in his investigation that uh, you know, first of all, for for orphans who had received um, money aid um, that came from the Holy Land Foundation, none of their dads had been involved in any activity that could be labeled terrorism and that out of a group of um, some I think it's 200 suicide bombers um, in Palestine uh, literally none of them had children Right. So this it's just it's just fucking false, right? Uh, right. What they're saying yeah. in terms of that you you know providing somehow for children uh, of of people who had died you know under occupation right. that this was encouraging terrorist activity. 
Yeah, and that I mean that jives with what we know about terrorism. You know, generally, just really quickly, like the the best terrorists are generally economically disenfranchised young men who who don't have other commitments and things to you know to allow themselves to blow themselves up. Right. The suicide bombers don't have kids. They're, they're, yeah. they're not family just, men with kids. Yeah. It's not. It's not the. Yeah. That's not the profile. Right. I will say just one piece of the record. I think that there was. I think, and I can't remember the source for this, but there there was some piece of evidence that while it doesn't appear that any of the orphans supported were children of actual people who carried out a terrorist attack, I don't, I don't think any evidence was offered to support that. I think that there was maybe one, maybe two, who were the children of people who had perhaps died while making a bomb. Uh, they had blown themselves yeah. up. And then, but these, but, but given like the mass amount of orphans that they had donated to, uh, these were just people who got hit with money. It was like, mm. you're a kid. You don't seem to be responsible for this. You should, you should <laughs> be able to go to school, and we're just going to make that happen for you. If anything, maybe you would fucking want that. And why, right? Like, before, right. maybe we'll give you some options in life other than following your dad. I don't. It's so fucking nuts the way this case turns out. Yeah. Every good thing they try to do is just turned to shit by these people. Right. Mm-hmm. Tanabit is really the reason why. Like we're even here today. Um, the HLF was literally born because of her. Um, you know, my dad seeing his daughter suffering in a hospital in the best country ever, and getting the best services that she could. And at the time, the first intifada had started, and my dad was watching the news of these like innocent kids, and he's like, I just wish I could give that to these kids. You know what? What my daughter is receiving here in this this amazing country, amazing you know medical services. I want to do that. So in addition, you know, another of these uh, kooky, awful uh, witnesses that the government brings in this in this <laughs> criminal prosecution is um, one guy, a translator named Shafiq. And um, what Shafiq is supposed to be translating are, um, you know, allegedly documents um, from the Holy Land Foundation or from Hamas purporting to, you know, show this connection. And these are all documents that are written in Arabic. Well, I think these you know, might be wiretap conversations. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, listening to um, listening to wiretap conversations and then um, translating spoken Arabic. That's right. Uh, translating spoken Arabic into English. Now, yeah. a really important thing to know about the Arabic language is that there's sort of a um, there's a formal standard Arabic dialect that is sort of all uh, native Arabic speakers um, understand. And if you're literate in Arabic, you um, read and write in in that formal standard dialect. That's the language for example that's um that's the dialect for example that's spoken like on the news in the middle east or or whatever but country to country region to region sometimes city to city arabic is a language of many many very different dialects um and these are called amiyas um every country uh has its own and um so like for example um the egyptian dialect uh is really well known across the middle east because egypt has um um, you know, a large film industry, a uh, big influence on uh, Middle Eastern pop culture, that kind of thing. But that's not necessarily true for all of the other dialects in Arabic. OK, right. for example, myself, uh, you know, born um, in the United States and, and raised um, Palestinian around my Palestinian family. I speak uh, sort of 
uh, you know, quintessentially signature Palestinian dialect. And it's right. very hard for me as somebody who did not grow up in the Middle East. It's it's literally hard for me to even understand or converse sometimes with Arabic speakers who are from, say, Iraq or, uh, you know, uh, or Yemen or uh, or North Africa. Um, well, these are re, re, let me ask you something. If you were being charged with a crime. Uh -huh. And some of the tra and, tra and your your Palestinian conversations were being listened to. Would uh -huh. you be excited to find out that the person translating them was an Egyptian Christian? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, you know, yeah. you're talking you're talking about um, idioms um, that are certainly uh, completely different region to region and country to country. Um, slang terms that are completely different. Um, and also, you know, literal words that in one country might mean one thing and in another country will mean something completely different. Right. So, um, uh, let, me so ask you, let, let me ask you another question. Please. As a resident of Texas. <laughs> Would you be confident that in a trial with a bunch of uh, Texas jury or your peers, this would come across real clearly to them. You'd be able to explain the nuances of this. You think, you think the Dallas soccer mom understood right. this when the defense was screaming? This is what these guys yeah, are up yeah, against. Yeah, right. yeah they, right. That's the it. government That's exactly gets right. basically Nassim Taleb to look at these Palestinian <laughs> transcripts. This is yeah, so, so fucking unfair. You tell, and, and what are they going to go? They're going to go. I don't know what, what kind of Chinese is that. I'm sorry, <laughs> right, right, right. But like, look, I don't know. That, he sounds like he knows Arabic. What the fuck do I know? He sounds like the yeah. guy on 24. Yeah. Regardless, the defense wasn't able to have access to the transcripts anyway, as we said earlier. Awesome. So Very really, cool. you couldn't even harp on direct examples. Because I think you could with a jury if you could get a word up there and say, well, they clearly meant this, even though you're saying this. Yeah, yeah. You know, really I mean, it wouldn't matter in the end, here. but it, yeah. It's but really if you don't point. have access to it. How are you how do you explain this to someone else? It's a really important point for for why they wanted every single transcript, right? Because right. when you say, "Well, we need some," and, and then the court says, "Well, why don't you just ask for the specific ones that you want?" Well, if we could have access to all of them, we might be able to compile a long list of places where this guy fucked up. And then yes. we could use that to throw Correct. his uh, you know, the relevant translations that they've put forth, we could throw them into question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Shafiq, this translator, is, uh, like Andy said, he's a Coptic Christian. He's not Muslim. He is Egyptian, not Palestinian. Um, and so, you know, again, these dialects are really, really different. And, um, you know, sometimes he's just kind of, uh, in his testimony, he's also, um, or, you know, in his translations, he's also just adding his own ideas, right? Uh, just riffing. Just right? <laughs> Just, just, <laughs> just riffing about, uh, like, saying that... Um, um, in these calls, they're talking about how Jews are evil when that is not in the call, literally. Well, they didn't say it, but I could tell they meant it. So I right, like right. just had yeah. a half page yeah. real quick to say um, that what they meant was. <laughs> right. He testifies at one point that Muslims uh, do not typically use phrases like inshallah and alhamdulillah. Uh, you know, he, he's sort of um, implying, right? The, this is only, that's only terminology used by fanatics. He's not like, implying. Like that's his direct testimony. He it, says that. it's ridiculous. Like, right. if, uh, I think I said in the last episode, in part one, you know, not only do Muslims use terms like inshallah and alhamdulillah all of the time, the world over, whether an Arabic speaking Muslim or not, but people who are uh, non-Muslim but speak Arabic also use right. those terms. Yeah. <laughs> 
Actually, it's not, uh, Muslims only use those phrases when they're very depressed. The truth in a being is beaming as the moon queen. You bless my future to be with Bismillah. For the soul's anguish, love. In the moment, my brothers program these drums. Alhamdulillah. We put the truth to the test. Proof that we bless students of this music at best it goes. So the government brings in some other anonymous witnesses. Um, one of them is a guy named Avi, who is uh, a member of, I think he's, he was, I don't know about Mossad, but he was some kind of intelligence agency. I guess we never know, because yeah. we're only given his first name. We're just you can't right. know too much about Avi. This guy That's named right. Avi, uh, who I love in the Al Jazeera documentary, is played by the most evil-looking man of the <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of, I mean, obviously... Nobody here is a, a huge friend of Israel, but I was just kind of like, all right, this is, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, this this is a little really problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was yeah. thinking the same thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm pulling on my collar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I do want to pause you for a second because you, you passed over this real quick, but an- what anonymous witness? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, I mean, again, it's, it's the early 2000s. The government's trying all kinds of uh, interesting ways to – uh, pretend to have the rule of law. Um, and so, like I said, they bring in this guy and they're like, this is Avi. And the opposing counsel. quotation marks. Right. Yeah, it, which is not his real name, I believe. It's, it's just what they're like, we have to yeah. call him Avi uh, for today. Uh, this is all you're getting. And so the opposing counsel is like, well, who is he? Like, yeah. why is he an expert? <laughs> Can you tell us, like, why, why does he know any of this stuff? And the government is essentially like, no. Uh, this is just a, a secret witness who's a secret expert witness, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it's not, not even, yeah, it's not like, sometimes you'll get cops in, you know, who are like you know, working right. undercover, confidential, yes, you know, like. Think back to okay. the militia, the militia yeah. uh, case we had a few episodes back. Obviously, they don't want to <laughs> let everyone know who their asset is, but this they can go to the court and say, opinion this witness. guy saw yeah. it, yeah, <laughs> right, which there's no reason to have it. We'll get into, I think, a little bit, but like, just on its face, like, if you're an expert, you're widely known in your field. It's not a secret. Yeah. You cannot be a secret expert. Well, okay, okay. I'll I'll push back on that and say that like specialized technical knowledge may be held by people who are not necessarily widely known. Uh, it's but not, they're not secret. You don't got to be famous. I will say. I, I will say. I mean, I, I say we just jump right Stick into your it. Your guns, too. The, the requirements of the federal rules say that in order to disclose an expert witness. You got to get a report from him, and then you basically have to get, like, you know, have you ever testified as an expert before? Where's all that stuff? Let me see your CV, stuff like that. The whole point is so that you can investigate this person, find out their history, find out if they've right. ever said anything contrary right. to yeah. the conclusions are going to stay here. Oy, it's, and, it's really important. And it's really important to remember that the expert's testifying for a jury who presumably has to evaluate on some merits. Which of the experts, because usually you'll have two experts or even if there's just one, they have to they have to evaluate on some criteria whether this expert is just completely Reliable. bullshitting you or if they actually know what they're talking about. Right. And if you don't even know who he is or, or what he does, you, you can't attack it if you're the opposing counsel. And if you're the jury, you can't really – you just have to go with the government's word. 
And I would say that you're not really available within the meaning of the federal rules. I mean, this is the argument that I was coming up, I'm, you know, with reading this stuff is that, look, it's fine. You know, th- their justification was that like national security required it, and then the safety of the witness. You know, uh, that they they feared that like Hamas would attack his family and attack him personally if they knew his real if they knew his real identity or something like this. But like that's fine to state all those uh, concerns or whatever. But if look. On the other side is a defendant who's getting ready to go to jail for, I mean, one of these, two, two of these guys get sentenced for 65 years. Sorry, if you can't testify within the meaning of the federal rules with full disclosure so that they can actually look into your background and stuff, I don't, I don't see why you get to come in and do this. Well, the, right. the, 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 the great laugh line from the documentary was when it's like I, the, the, the defense lawyer is cross-examining him. It's like, I can't even Google you. Uh, and, and, and Avi says, "I googled myself this morning. I found lots of stuff." <laughs> you know, like, okay, so, when you have your real rod, great. Um, but yeah, would you mind sending me that search? During the cross examination, they ask him, "Like, well, have you written any articles about this?" And he's he basically he says, "No. I wish I'd I wish I had written an article, but I've never. I'd love done to that. read a book like that. Yeah, mm. I would like to read a book about that stuff." Um, and so you kind of get the sense that he was just kind of brought along for this investigation. Um, and he essentially tells the jury, like, eh, I don't need any proof they were helping Hamas. You, you can just tell. Yeah. I can smell Hamas on them. Yeah. Um, and and so, yeah, the government basically just put him on the stand to say, yes, the government said the correct stuff. And, and the defense could not reasonably muster any kind of defense against that because they weren't allowed to. It's just so foul. In the in the in the later in the later appeals of the of the second trial, um, you see some. The way the appellate court looks at this is they say that well, the government's interest or you know you know the the interest in protecting the witness's safety over overrides the interest of the witness in confronting. I'm sorry, of the defendant in confronting the witness uh, more fully. And so even what though it's, we're talking about fucking constitutional right, right? right? To uh, not even just, con- no, humanitarian law. One of the basic, like, international things of due process is the ability for somebody to confront their witness. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, in the United States, under the fucking Sixth Amendment, you have a right to confront the witness. Sure. And what they say is, okay, but that right's not absolute. That right is subject <laughs> to, you know, basically us saying that you can't really. And what they say is, well, the, the the restrictions here were reasonable, and then the appellate court makes uh, what I think of – they make an incredible ruling that is – it rhymes with a lot of the rulings that you find in this case, which is what they say is we thought about it, and basically they wouldn't have found anything if they had been able to right. because the guy uses a secret name all the time. So even if we gave you his real name, uh, you wouldn't have found anything about that real name. So because of that – uh, you weren't prejudiced by it, but that that of course just like hides that just pushes the bu- that just pushes it you know f- pushes the bump in the rug you know a little further down because right. the ultimate thing is oh well the the guy uses a secret name all the time so therefore you'll never find anything on his background that only amplifies the problem that doesn't solve the fucking problem if I can't find his background he's not disclosed within the meaning of the rules what are you talking about. Right. The bottom line is I have not been able to confront this witness against us. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that. That's it. So that doesn't um, that doesn't make the error less harmless that even if I had had one of his whatever, 10 secret names, I wouldn't have been able to find information about him. 
It possibly makes it worse, right? Here goes a mm. fucking secret agent with in- they can't even tell us his real name, right? You're on the jury. It's entirely mm-hmm. possible for you to be like ensorcelled by that, right? And be like, wow, he must know what he's fucking talking about. That's right. Yeah. I don't want to delve too deep into the, the, the conspiratorial symbolic thinking of, along the lines of Samah and Hamas, but uh, I will note that Avi <laughs> wasn't the only secret expert witness. There was also a guy named Major Liar. <laughs> I mean, laying it on a little thick, are you? Yeah. Major Lior. Major Lior, yes. No, you're right, though. You're absolutely yeah. right. That's so funny. Yeah, Major Lior's thing was that he, uh, you know, he was essentially another conduit for hearsay. Uh, they raided, you know, during what, what did they, they called this thing Operation Defensive Shield, which is always a great thing to call. They love aggressive attacks, like right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they raid these Zakat communities where a bunch of documents that mostly were created after the Holy <coughs> Land Foundation was shuttered. Um, and he's there to just say, yeah, we seized all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the cross reveals that, well, he wasn't there when they seized it, he just manages the unit. <laughs> He heard about it. He heard, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His guys said that that's what they did. <laughs> so now that's a problem because chain of custody is generally an issue for evidence. And in my view, the government probably got the wrong guy. What the court said, I mean, what, what the court ultimately it says is that like, oh, come on, they could have got the other guy. You think they're really going to say something different? And they're probably right about that. But I will say that uh, even technical failings should go defendant's way when we're talking about, right? You know, essentially life imprisonment. Yeah, they're the prosecution. They have to get it right if they actually want this guy in prison. That's right. that's kind of the idea. You shouldn't just get a fucking pass on everything. Yeah, one would think. So one would think. Returning to my friend Matt Levitt, um, so I searched I searched this guy today because I was reviewing in preparation for the episode, and I found him on Twitter, and so I searched his account for HLF. You can find Matt Levitt on Twitter. He's Levitt underscore Matt, I think. Um, and I, and I found him complaining about Georgetown because I guess Georgetown, some sub-entity of Georgetown, some organization at Georgetown, had written up the Holy Land Foundation case lamenting the plight of these men and what happened to them. Um, and he is quote-tweeting that saying, this is horrible. I, I'm really disappointed to see Georgetown, uh, a Georgetown-affiliated organization uh, looking at this. They're just giving a totally slanted presentation of the evidence here. Uh, they don't even review the El Baras documentation. That's the stuff that really gave the prosecution its major lift, and they don't even mention it. So I, I didn't want us to be subject to the same kind of criticism. So I looked at the El Baras <laughs> documentation and what, and what the various courts said about it. And what the El Baras documentation is, is stuff that they found in a raid in Annandale, Virginia, uh, 2004, I think, and uh, they raid a place and they get a bunch of documents. And with the here's, here's what the documents are. Here's a summary of the fucking documents. They're all from pre-1995. <laughs> Every single <laughs> fucking one of them. <clears throat> so these are pre-1995 connections between HLF and Hamas. It's connections with Hamas leaders, organizational charts, financial documents. Now, a lot of these documents, we don't know the author of the document. And so defendants objected to the introduction of this stuff saying, well, why is this, this is all hearsay? Why is it allowed to be admitted? And they said, "Well, it's it's your co-conspirator statements." And they said, "Well, what co There's no fucking conspiracy pre 1995. <laughs> what are you talking about?" And they said, "Well, it doesn't have to be an illegal conspiracy." Hmm. That's literally the fucking argument. <laughs> oh. So they got away with that. Um, 
but still, even even admitting all of it, this is what you know, Doctor Matt Levitt believes is like the Smoking you know the, the game changing evidence is that pre nineteen ninety five they worked with or for Hamas, um, and so the argument goes that well after nineteen ninety five they must have still been working with Hamas because I don't know Matt never says what he wanted them to do or what they should have done to distinguish themselves, um, so it's it's very. It's just an impossible fucking standard these people have to live up to. And I don't think the El Baras documentation shows anything except what everybody already knew, which is, yeah, pre-1995, when it was legal, there were connections yeah. with Hamas. Of course there fucking were. Duh! You're sending money to a place and there's a governing ruling party of the place. You probably do have some connections with them until you're told not to, and then you back off and you start, you know, segregating your organization. Right, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I mean, I think it's easy to think here that it's like, oh, well, they would have known Hamas was a terrorist organization even before 1995. And I think that's what Matthew Levitt thinks. But I I mean, Mm -hmm. again, I want to stress, in the early, or in the late 80s and early 90s, I mean, Israel and Hamas worked together because, again, they they were using them for counterweights for other socialist parties in the area. And, you know, I know lots of other people on Twitter right now who are spooks who, I mean, I remember just a random example at the top of my head, Terrell Starr with his post Azov Battalion in the His House where he's hanging out with Azov Battalion members. It's like, people who work, you know, in in foreign areas, like, (laughs) get into these guys in, in random ways. And I think that goes doubly so when, you know, I mean, these people are from that area, like they're going to have connections to the communities over there. And when those communities are forced to, to you know, look to organizations like Hamas to, to even provide basic services, there's going to be that crossover. And so as long as it's not criminal, I mean, even if it is criminal, obviously there's, you know, other apps, but, you know, legally speaking, as long as it's not criminal, you know, they're, they don't have notice that they can't do this stuff, like we said. So the ultimate summary of the government's case here is that pre-1995, you had a bunch of connections. Post-1995, they show a little bit of evidence. What they, what they, say, what they show for post-1995 is you had some teleconferences where some Hamas members, some Hamas speakers appeared to have attended the teleconference or spoke at the teleconference. Okay, that's, right. that's their – okay, now it's not illegal it, it's, to associate yeah. with these people. Okay, it's literally it's just It's not the entirety of their case though because well, uh, they also just show the jury lots of footage from random attacks by Hamas on, on various Israeli targets. You know, you guys are sort of poo-pooing the government's case here a little bit. You know? <laughs> you're, you're, that- you're suggesting you know, that they had a guy who talked to the IDF, uh, a translator who didn't really speak the right kind of Arabic, uh, some guy who was an un- – who was the – what was he, the associate and joint bank account holder of an unindicted co-conspirator, some evidence from his house. You had two anonymous uh, experts, including one named Major Liar. Uh, (laughs) But you're... You're forgetting that they also showed a ton of gore videos to the jury. Yeah, they they showed him basically dismembered Israeli video. video. Yeah, uh, tons of that. God, there were so many good things in here. It's like impossible to hit them all. Um, like, like one point there was, there was a bunch of computer images that had, uh, that were seized from HLF computers. Oh, for the love of God. Yeah. And, and, the, oh, Im- yeah. and the images had, you know, uh, you know, stuff after, uh, a, a suicide bombing. There were like images on the, found on the computer that appeared to relate to various attacks terrorism. that had been taken out, you know, terrorist attacks. And, <laughs> and what the defense said about these is like, look, this is, 
These were not images that were stored on the computer as if they were like downloaded JPEGs. These were cached by the fucking browser. You're talking about somebody <laughs> went to, I mean, this could be every. These no, were cookies, your honor. <laughs> none of you listening to this could pass this fucking test. Okay. Like you all visited Reuters and, you know, we're on Twitter and like cached images that are on your computer. I'm sure I could build a case that says you're sympathetic towards fucking violence or whatever using just that kind of stuff. So that's not probative of anything. I mean, that's a later discussion, but like this is evidence that they challenged is not probative and unduly prejudicial, which I think is probably one of the most perfect examples of something that where that should fit. And of course the appellate court says, no, no, this is, this is, this tells you what these guys were really thinking. You won't yeah. find any of that in my cached images. You'll only, <laughs> find, you'll only find porn. Well, the, the, so, so the reason I was, I was going into what they actually had about the post 1995 <laughs> is I do. I don't want to be accused of like, except by you, Tark, of, of not giving the government, like, its full due. What they had post-95 was they had these guys on teleconferences, and then they also were recorded in some of the wiretaps saying, you know, appreciating certain uh, suicide bombings or violent attacks. They, they called them a beautiful operation. They said that was good that it happened, you know, God bless this or whatever. Um, and then that's sort of used to smear them. Now, now, Look, on its face, maybe not like a nice statement to make, although I think it's pretty uncontroversial, at least in today's politics. I've said worst on this podcast. Everybody oh, fucking yeah, says sure. shit like that. Actually, oh, you've said worst totally. on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. so, like, so, like, now consider how little basis anyone listening to this you have to wish absolute death on your fucking political enemies. Consider how, and, and yet you do it all the time, right? right. Now think right. about these people. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, and your family basis. isn't even dying from lack of medical access. Yeah. Right, so I just so the, this is the post nineteen ninety five evidence that they have. They had them on a teleconference, and then they also were recorded, you know, expressing appreciation for some of the violent stuff. That's what they fucking had. The rest is evidence that the Zakat communities were controlled by Hamas. That's it. That's the fucking case. Well, and and there's perhaps no better testament to how shitty the case is than the fact that the government lost in Texas yeah. a right. bunch of against a bunch of Arab dudes. They uh, lost bad. Yeah. yeah, a couple years after 9-11. Yeah, too. Right. in 2004. Right. Was, yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, jurors, yeah. the jurors in there, was, one of the jurors was quoted as saying, if these guys were Christian, you wouldn't have brought this case. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my God. Damn. I mean, <laughs> For a Texas right. juror Woo! to get that loud and clear. Yeah. yeah. They could. I mean, they had they had hundreds of charges against these guys, didn't they? And and they yeah. could not get a unanimous nope. vote on one charge against one nope. guy. Right. Nice. They got a single conviction. The only unanimous thing that they got were a bunch of acquittals. Yeah. 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 So they're at the end of the first trial. There's a bunch of acquittals, and um, and a mistrial is declared on on the other stuff. Mm-hmm. There's the uh, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I I think we have to rethink the entire premise of this podcast. The system worked. <laughs> you know what? The system works. Congratulations. Yeah, the government gets one bite at the apple. They yeah. failed. It's a good game. Tar, yeah. roll, roll some roll some happy music. We did. No, yeah. And thanks for listening to A Lab. But thanks, Rhiannon. Uh. <laughs> and that's when they learned a lesson and they decided, yeah. you know what? We're sorry. And they apologized to them. Yeah. Yep. In the form of a second prosecution. <laughs> right. <laughs> just kidding. There's a whole nother case. Psych. We're just going to try again. We're going to do a do over. Yeah, so a second trial happens, uh, and they 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 want to they want a second crack at it, and uh, yeah, it's awesome. So this time this time they show up with even bigger guns. Uh, they change a couple of things. We're gonna talk about basically what they changed. They presented all the same stuff. This time they're coming for fuck. They're bringing fucking nine eleven, right? Yes. yes, that's the yes. real deal they're coming with. 
Yes, they literally just show 9-11 to the jury and just say, huh? Yeah. Huh? What, I, what I love about 9-11 is it's been hung around the necks of just a diverse array of people, uh, you know, from from these guys, you know, there's no yeah, allegation. You would, that... you would think Rudy Giuliani would have just shown up at this trial for a little bit. <laughs> there's no allegation that Hamas had any fucking thing to do with that. No, right? of course you not. Know, right. Poor Sikhs are getting the shit kicked out of them in the street after 9-11. You know, they, you know we, we, we invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, like the only guys that have never had 9-11 hung around their neck are the Saudis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was I was working a loading dock in 2001, and I grew a beard that year, and I got called yeah. Osama like 300 fucking times Jesus. <laughs> oh man so let's talk about what the government did differently this time what did they change in this second trial because obviously they got their asses kicked this got written up in the new york times and it was pretty brutal it was like wow they got their i mean the new york times was not it was just like yeah. wow they got fucked i said this when we were talking before but um the absolute worst thing that the HLF-5 did was beat the government in the first case. Right. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, not only did, you know, were they asleep at the switch and allowed these guys to fund Hamas and cause terrorism or whatever the fuck, but they also just kicked the shit out of them in a, in a, in a highly public trial, right? So yeah, uh, that does not tend to augur well for you as a, as a, as a Muslim American in these circumstances uh, at this time uh, in, in our history. Absolutely. Yeah, and... Uh... It will not auger well. <laughs> no. no. So you were saying, what did, what, the, what did the government do differently this time? Right. So they added a guy from the Treasury Department named Joe McBrien, uh, and he's an OFAC guy. Clinton era, I think. Yeah. Right. So the government brings him in basically to say, there's no way you can satisfy anything to show that you're complying. He, he, was, he, pre- he, he presented all the steps that HLF took to assure that they were complying with uh, not providing material support to terrorism and said, eh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to give credit to Mr. McBrien uh, for being one of the few truthful witnesses. Uh, sure, yes, that's, that's what I was going to say. Because yeah. that is absolutely true. No matter what you do to comply, <laughs> it does not fucking matter. Yeah, that's what he says. And Getting we back we to what we subdivide. said before. We're not going to designate every downstream organization. And if we miss them and you're later found to have been you know, associating with an organization that we later decide – uh, is out of line, then we're going to come back and fuck you. Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly how OFAC yeah. works. And that really was, I think, in some ways what the jury was missing in terms of an order of hand conviction. Like, no, 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 no. They're Muslim. They did 9-11. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter. Go ahead. So Joe McBrien um, is giving lay testimony in this case, which is kind of a fun reversal from the earlier case where they were giving expert testimony as a way to kind of sneak in a bunch of hearsay. Uh, Joe McBrien is supposed to give testimony over things that he had said and heard from HLF. But instead, what the the major focus of his testimony is, is that it's about how HLF should have known that their money mm-hmm. was going to terrorists. Yeah, he's just talking about general OFAC procedures. Yeah. That yeah. that is not that is not testimony that's within a layperson's understanding. The rules of right. evidence yeah, require that's not an something ex- you see. Yeah, you gotta be requ- <laughs> qualified as an expert to do that. And you can't just come in and just dump uh, you know, generalized, you know, specialized technical testimony that's based on specialized expertise from a lay witness. Well, I gotta, I gotta yeah. imagine that the defense would have willingly stipulated that OFAC will fuck you. No Just take judicial notice of that fact. Take judicial note exactly. Uh, what do you need testimony on this? Fact? Well, that's ultimately what the appellate court concluded. Is like, yeah, maybe there was yeah. some error here, but come on. So I, I will say, I will say that. The, the testimony of Joe McBrien here is particularly uh, twisting the knife 
because Joe McBride was at the Treasury Department during the designation of Hamas as a foreign terrorist organization. And in 1996, right after that happened, I think it's Ghassan Alashi representing HLF goes to the Treasury Department, you know, folded palms and saying, what do we do? Who can we donate to? How do we make sure that we are complying with the law? Give us, give us a notification. Tell us what we need to do. We want to comply with the law. Here's my situation. And he meets with a number of people, including Joe McBrien. And I, apparently he just gets all the fuck off. Like, they just don't give him anything. Yeah. And Treasury, <laughs> Treasury doesn't pu- publish... Don't pub- talk to me, is what he says. <laughs> Treasury doesn't publish these, these guidelines until 2002, you know, conveniently right after HLF is shuttered. So they have no fucking guidance, but there is a record that these guys attempted to get some advice. Tell us how to do this. And, and all they used it, you know, the prosecution obviously uses that as like, well, that was just you trying to cover your paper. Just set a paper trail, cover your real intent. Now, Andy, practice point. Okay. Oh, we're learning? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I do not care what the issue is and how technical it might be and how it might turn on desk drawer interpretations of the agency of its own regulations do not ever ever go to treasury (laughs) and ask them their opinion on what you're doing i am actually willing to go out even further on a limb than i have ever gone before and suggest that the that that the moment when things started to go bad for the Holy Land Foundation is when they went and asked Treasury uh, whether what they were doing was okay. <laughs> I think these guys were on the Israeli radar beforehand, but yeah, yeah. probably Joe McBride is the one. He saw that on an email chain on a fucking 2001 iMac was like, got it. I cannot stress this enough. Pick up the phone, call Covington and Burling, call, you know, pick your big DC law firm. Do not call OFAC and say, I just want to run a fact pattern by you. Don't don't do that. This interaction to me is like a guy's fallen off the side of a building. You let him go and then somehow take a super speed elevator to the ground and show up at the trial to watch him crash into the fucking ground in time and then get your phone out and put (laughs) it on TikTok. Like that's what this guy fucking did. Why do you got to show up at the trial, man? You already fucked him. Uh, when they were seeking advice. I just, I find this so detestable. Well, I mean, the government was pissed, so they needed to twist the knife as much as they could. Yep. That's that's thing one. That's one of the main. That's one of the main changes to the yeah. second trial. Uh, another one is this guy Shorbaji. Does anybody want to talk about him? Shorbaji's the guy who who was from Gaza, but not had never been in the West Bank, and basically uh, testified that from people he spoke to and stuff he read online. Um, there's a connection between Hamas and some of these. Uh, yeah, he uh, he literally just read posts about Hamas. Well, well, I think like some news articles as well. I think he read. I, I think he worked in an HLF branch there. I might mm. have him mixed up with somebody. I think he worked in an HLF branch there. But essentially, what this guy is is he's a guy who took a deal to cooperate against HLF. 
right? Yeah. He, yeah exactly. No, well, he was, he was, he's the guy who was busted on the embezzlement charges. Yeah, right? that's right. But that yeah, had nothing right. to do with HLF whatsoever. Some other job. He was like, we're going to, you know, some other, uh, other this place. This job, yes. Got himself jacked up by the government. Um, and then they found out that previously, years prior, he had worked at the Holy Land Foundation and got him <laughs> to flip on them. That's right. Uh, yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. So this yeah. is very uncredible testimony. As, as it turned, so, so later, they're trying to rely on him to say, look, the Sakak communities are all controlled by Hamas, right? The problem is um, he doesn't appear to fucking know anything, right? The guys were saying earlier that uh, he was just looking at posts, and that's what he said. Oh, yeah, I saw everybody knows. You know, I read it in a newspaper. I saw it on a website. And so he's just this loose cannon. The pr- prosecution cannot – he doesn't know his lines. The prosecution cannot get the testimony that they rehearsed, I guess, out of him. And so finally, they're just going into leading questions where they're like, do you remember this Zaka community? So f- first, they a- first they ask him, is this Zaka community Hamas controlled? And he's like, ah, fuck, I don't know. And they're like, do you remember this Zaka community? Yes. Was it Hamas controlled? Yes. Like, that's the level of testimony they have to get down to. This, you're, ge- you're not generally allowed to lead your own witnesses. And at this level, you can ask open-ended questions like, do you, rec- do you remember X? Yes. And was it Hamas controlled? Yes. That doesn't technically violate the leading question rule, but I got to say at this point, like antennas should be up uh, for the judge that like this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah. Right. It should be excluded when it's like so clear that the that the government attorneys are like resorting to this right. style of questioning exactly because right. the yeah. guy isn't saying isn't testifying. Right. Once he hasn't answered it three, four five times, there's a problem. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, So another way that the government uh, was able to um, change this trial a little bit, um, they get in some Israeli documents that that were not allowed (laughs) in the first trial. Um, So these are documents obtained through IDF raids on uh, Zakat committee offices. Um, And in many cases, like these documents were dated after HLF was shut down and the documents described events that happened after HLF was shut down. <laughs> so, awesome. you know, in what world are these relevant then right. uh, about, yeah. you know, regarding HLF's actions? They're a defendant out of time because right. pre-1995 conduct becomes illegal. Stuff after they got arrested <laughs> right. is now being brought in in the case against them. Right, just... right. Um, and in some cases, these documents are undated and unsigned, just completely yeah unverifiable yeah. right Th- these are just ass. words yeah. on a piece of paper with no one to authenticate or contextualize them uh yeah. and it's maybe the one thing worse than secret evidence is evidence that is very clearly bullshit <laughs> right right a, a, a post-it note with with words on it one of the documents is quite literally i i i'm paraphrasing i, I might get this i might i might get this wrong in uh in detail but not in spirit it definitely said who is funding hamas <laughs> this is unsigned, Amazing. undated. It's just like it's just scribbled on a fucking piece of paper. Who is funding Hamas? And HLF happens to be one of the things on there. Why would you even have yeah. a document that says that with that question at the top? So fucking, are you live on Sesame Street? Yeah, literally. <laughs> I was just about to say, Andy. Like literally, Harriet the Spy was investigating like, more, <laughs> more, more complicated right. shit than this. <laughs>
ارجع لورا مش طالع بايدي اغير نصيبي ولا حدا فاهم اساليبي طالع بايدي كاسه ويسكي ولسه ما بتكفيني Simon. He's a Clinton-era National Security Council guy, and he was there when Hamas was originally designated. So these Clinton witnesses are just fucking batting a thousand. Um, so he, so ostensibly he's there to educate everybody about some dry, boring shit related to the Oslo Accords and the Israel-Palestine peace process. I don't know why he's there, given that they already had Levitt, whose entire dissertation. No, you know was why on. he's there. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, You're right, right. Levitt right. was there for Iran or Israel. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, yes. Simon is there for 9-11. <laughs> right. So it doesn't really make sense that he's there to testify about the Israel-Palestine peace process when you already got the guy who wrote his fucking dissertation on it as an expert witness. The real reason he's there is to fucking go off about 9-11, and he gets to, he gets to just start teeing off, right, on the record. Look, look, we all know. Okay, these people come here from another country, they're angry at the United States, and they're capable of harming us quite badly. Huh? You know yeah. what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Now, none of these people is alleged, not, the, not HLF, not any of the defendants alleged to have anything to do with 9-11. But the entire, all he's doing is smearing them. They're fucking Muslims. 9-11 is all foreign nationals anyway. I mean, it's like the, right. these guys are right. immigrants. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, Judge. Well, leaving aside that none of, them were, none of them were Palestinian. I mean, one, one brave soldier of 9-11 was Lebanese. Uh, and the rest <laughs> were, yeah. Oh, I'm going to cut that. <laughs> right, so so I mean, look, the 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 substance of his testimony is, look, they're fucking Muslims, and you know what, you know what they do, don't you know what they do? Come on, this is nine eleven. You want another one of those? We stopped it. You're you're welcome. So yeah. now, where's where's the judge in all this? He's just he's just fucking phoning it in. He lets all yeah. this shit go. He the first yeah. judge was letting stuff in, but the, the, but even the first judge was more. Uh, was more of a gatekeeper than this guy. Solis, yeah, the, the, the second This guy let in, expressly let in a bunch of in. stuff that the, even the even the guy who was completely in the tank for the prosecution in the first trial had excluded. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, they got a double hack for this one, <laughs> right? So, so he's letting yeah. he's letting every single thing in. Uh, there's nothing that the prosecution could do wrong, but. It's totally one-sided. At one point, the defense is asking Steve Simon, who we were just talking about, they're asking about his work, like, okay, what about when you would prepare uh, a, you know, administration officials for appearances in front of pro-Israeli organizations? They want to know about that. They're trying to establish bias. The judge, unprompted, turns to the prosecution and says, you got any objection? Do you want to state to this line of questioning? <laughs> so the, the, the attorney wakes up and goes, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's irrelevant. It's outside the scope. And the judge says, sustained, absolutely. <laughs> Jesus. Right? So that's what you're up against. Yeah. Everything they do comes in, uh, and anything you do, even the judge is working on their team to come up with objections they're not even stating. So right. I think if you're listening to this, you can see where this is going. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the defendants and their families, you know, based on the interviews and other things, knew where it was going. But I, I'm not sure that anybody was prepared for where it wound up, right? I mean, like, I think, I think even after all this stuff, they were sort of expecting, uh, you know, okay, we're, we're fucked here, but you know, fine, I'll do my five years and and you know, try to pick up the pieces of my life. Uh, yeah, yeah. That didn't that didn't quite happen. No, they got handed. I mean, they got really fucked by the sentencing. Yeah. Um, 
I don't, we don't have it, but I, I want to say there were two uh, sixty-five year sentences. Yeah, Shukri Abu Bakr being one of the people that was sentenced to a sixty-five year sentence. Yeah, two um, sixty-five year sentences. I think the the sort of lowest or least harsh uh, sentence given was um, 15, fifteen years. There yeah, were two fifteens, mm-hmm. two sixty-fives, and a twenty. Yeah, right. If I recall correctly. And keep I mean, in mind, this again is a trial that already had. Uh, mistrials and acquittals on every single count for giving to uh, the wrong charity that the United States yeah. was giving to the entire time. Right. But I mean, it already text a Texas jury in 2004, as we said, you know, not too long ago, oh, yeah. already found these guys completely not guilty, but the government, well, they deadlocked. Just, they deadlocked. Yeah. They didn't acquit on but all of it. They didn't, they didn't find them guilty. That's, just, yeah. that's, a, that's basically not guilty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, Shukri Abu Bakr, Shukri Abu Bakr is, uh, was 50 right. in 2009, I think, when the sentences finally came down, right? I mean, that's 65 years in prison. I mean, the man is going to die in prison. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, uh, I assume most of the other ones are going to – maybe the 15-year guys might get a – you know, a handful yeah, there of there are a uh, few younger guys in there too, but yeah, definitely. I mean, if if they're not dead by the time they get out, they they won't have much. I mean, Ode was forty nine. Abdul Qadir was forty nine. Alashi was fifty five. El Mazain was fifty five. I mean, like these guys are, they're all going to die in prison. Yeah, they'll be lucky right. to get out for right. five minutes. Yeah, I was gonna say not that much lucky. Yeah. Um, but they appeal. They do, yeah, they appeal. Um, and I mean, luckily for them, the court does find that a lot of this new evidence that came in uh, was not acceptable. Yeah. Um, in fact, they McBrien, found four. They found four big errors. Yeah, right. McBrien was was not expert test was undisclosed expert testimony. Um, you know, based on what we said earlier, uh, Shrabaji had no basis for bringing his statements to the stand and was just making it up as he went along. A lot of the IDF documents from the Zagat raids were inadmissible hearsay, and they were prejudicial. Uh, and Steve Simon wasn't allowed to just go Muslims and and kind of <laughs> you know point the the jury in that direction. So they um, have found they have found four actual errors, uh, all of which is this new stuff, right? I right. Mean, like, so it would have you would news. think it would go back to the old case, mm-hmm. uh, right? Except, but it doesn't. yeah, yeah. Just, despite winning, you know, all of those challenges to the evidence that the government brought, um, the appellate court says, actually, well, this is harmless error. It's error, but uh, there's no harm done, right? No harm, no foul. Um, and so despite there being no evidence whatsoever that HLF did anything other than give money to Palestinians, uh, a group of people not responsible for 9-11, right? Uh, HLF was still guilty in the eyes of the United States of having committed a crime. And um, as we've said, that crime, as far as anyone can tell, is um, being Muslim and uh, donating to Muslims in like the late 90s, early 2000s. For our, for our, for our lay listeners, I mean, this is important because I, I did criminal appeals for a while. And, you know, I mean, this is... I mean, there's an art. There's an art to it, which is you sort of have to find where they fucked up. You know, this broke a rule. This was against the constitution. This was so. I mean, but identifying error is never enough. You have to also sort of convince them that the errors, uh, you know, that there's a that, that there's a violation of the sort of equities that 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 one would expect, right? That the right. error, that the errors were not only technicality they're not just technicalities right that they would have had a material effect on the outcome uh 
you know that the that, that the error sort of drove uh, the result and sort of so just to find constitutional violations or other rules of evidence violations or other things is not sufficient. You have to show that it meant uh, it would have meant a different outcome uh, almost. And so, despite these all being found to be clear error, uh, they're still harmless. And and you know who gives a shit, which yeah. is ridiculous because the four things that they found to be <laughs> exactly error were the Are four huge. new things. Yeah. Right, you right. already I have mean, it, you already have a data point that these yeah. errors aren't harmless because the jury deadlocked before they had this shit. Now you put yeah. this shit in and you get a you get a conviction on all counts. Right. Uh, yeah. This is you these are the only have a changes control for this. It's like right. it's like a perfect scientific experiment yeah. on this evidence. <laughs> exactly. We have two trials. All the things that are different are errors uh, between the first and the second one. Yeah. And yet, those still constitute harmless error. It's, right. It's a, it's an astounding underwriting of what was already a, a pretty astounding couple of trials. Yeah. So what they say on appeal is like, well, a lot of the evidence was cumulative. Look, other people already said some of this stuff and what, and, and what the rule is. And I don't, I don't think this is necessarily a wise rule is that if the evidence is cumulative of other evidence, meaning that it, that someone else already said the same thing that the impermissible thing said, then it's really a harmless error. And I get why they have that rule, but it's mostly judicial efficiency because mm-hmm. what they're saying is it's harmless. But is that really true? Like if someone tells you something once, Okay, if someone tells you something twice, do you think you're more likely to remember it? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, and if it's, it's fucking And if it's something that's said in error and yet you hear it over rules. and over again, then you know, you're not uh, as a juror, you're not sort of like critiquing or questioning or uh, sufficiently skeptical about that because you've heard it not just once but repeated. Well, they might right. be they might be saying that that the first time is cumulative of properly admitted evidence. But still, still if you don't have a basis to be repeating the evidence, uh, I, I think it. they try to yeah. act like it's harmless, but I don't think you can round it down to zero. If somebody else gets to come in and improperly uh, opine again, um, I, I don't see why that's not why that is a harmless error. And and outside of kind of, you know, the 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 core itself, I mean, you really have to look at these proceedings. It's not like the first ones weren't tainted by just a variety of, of deficiencies in the evidence that they brought forth in the initial case. I mean, part of that, you know, part of those deficiencies led to there not being any convictions. But if even if the, the second jury had relied on the quote unquote properly admitted evidence, I mean, it's still far and away not something that most reasonable people would understand to be stuff you could use to prove guilt on someone even for the the conduct that was that they were accused of which as we already said also was very attenuated right on sentencing day my father got up walked to the podium and said the following nothing in my life was as satisfactory as knowing that i could sign a check It was the only evidence you have used against me, but that was the most enjoyable part of my life, knowing that I could sign a check to assist the thousands of Palestinian families who got displaced after their homes were demolished. Nothing was more satisfactory to me than providing scholarships to hundreds of Palestinian students who had high average grades despite their circumstance. Um, so, I mean, I think just to bring it all home, I mean, again, the, the upshot is these people are still in prison, right? Yes. None of these people are allowed out. 
Um, I wanted to, to echo what I said at the last one. Nancy Hollander, um, who defended these guys and wrote a Law Review article about it, uh, she goes back to kind of a point she makes earlier in the in the the article, saying that this case is the Korematsu of our era. And again, I, I think it again marks that the 2000s, the early 2000s, are really going to be a period in our legal history that's a, a nadir for civil rights. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's something that's still going on today. Uh, I mean, just a few weeks ago, at the end of May, there was an appellate court in Illinois that um, is hearing arguments for somebody who was killed in a West Bank bus stop in 1996. Uh, and they sued an organization called American Muslims for Palestine, which I believe is still extant. Um, yeah, they're still an extant organization, and they're being sued by these people that died in Israel, uh, basically on, on the theory that American Muslims for Palestine is kind of like a reformed HLF. If not directly, then it's, it's you know, they're the same kind of people. You know, it's the God. same idea. And so some of the money even that, that came from those early raids, I believe, is used as part of this victim fund. Um, all right, here, let me, let me see if I can tee it up. I mean, I think in the years since then, right? I mean, we've had Obama, we had the Trump years, and to an extent, you've seen kind of a cooling off, right, of, of this single-minded focus of law enforcement against Muslims. Easy for you to say. <laughs> 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 Depends on who you talk to. But there's there was the rules of engagement kind of reset that Obama did. Snowden and, and uh, Julian Assange have kind of, you know, put to the forefront the the extent to which the security state exists. And so it's not something that the government has as much appetite for, naturally, as it did in the early 2000s. But that doesn't mean that it's gone, right? The framework for it still exists. The Patriot Act still exists. ADPA still exists. All this stuff still exists. And it's this case has precedence today, exists. right? Yeah, th- this case has not been overturned. Um, and so, you know, it it still does affect people today. This, this comes to an issue that I I I, I did want to at least state before we finish the episode, which is that what you're left with here. The example of these men is horrible. What's happened to them is horrible. What they did after Hamas was designated was run around and try to figure out how they could possibly legalize their conduct, and they got no feedback, nothing. So they just tried to keep on, you know, pursuing a cause that they believed in and donating to, you know, suffering occupied Palestine. And then they got, you know, sentenced to effectively life in prison. And for you know designations that were made like after their conduct or or for you know reweighing of the evidence that happened after their conduct and so the the question that that's in my mind is like what were they supposed to do the question that i think every one of these people should have to answer matt levitt all these all these fuckers who testified here is what did you want them to do what is it that you would accept what proof could they have undertaken what what could they have done to immunize themselves from this kind of result you know and 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 it can't just be well don't have calls where they uh where they're mean about the state of israel or something sorry that's not fair what what actions could they have taken and the reason it's relevant and and and, you know jumping off of your point tim is that like if you support a cause the the legal i'm thinking about the legal advice to give to our listeners here is that if you support a cause that is later deemed to be connected in some way to terrorism, like say, you know, we start doing domestic classifications of, of groups here uh, in the next few years, which some people are really hyped up for. The only thing that you can do 
with this legal precedent is fucking run. Abandon it entirely. Do not ever attend another meeting related to it. Give it up mm-hmm. and stop speaking in on its behalf. Stop sending money because somehow we will trace that back and you will go to jail. That's the only that's the only thing yeah. I can do to tell to tell I, you. I I think in this case honestly it goes even further, right? Because they were Muslim. There was no way they could have ran from being Muslim. They could have converted. They that's could it. have that's tried all to they cut. could have done. Right. Right. Because if they'd gone back to Palestine, obviously they were under Israeli occupation and and things are probably even more uh capricious there. Um so so I I, I actually I I, I want to harp on the point that this is the way that the government kind of removes personhood from these people, right? They they are they are taking the step to eliminate these people, and this is how they do it, and this is how they're able to launder it through the courts rather than you know passing fucking crystal knocked era laws. Well, uh, you know, Rhiannon, you can jump in and support me with some Muslimic hijinks that I'm about to go on. But um, <laughs> are you gonna sell us a is rug? This, is this where we start? Ulu- yeah, is this where we start ululating? Ululating, I'm, yes. Yeah. <laughs> my, my 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 name is Tarek, and the reason my name is Tarek is because my father immigrated, uh, you know, to the U.S. and his big hero was Tarek bin Ziad. And Tarek bin Ziad was a Moorish conqueror of Spain, and when he landed on the shores of Spain, he famously burned his ship so there was no turning back. Right. And the real fucking hilarious part about this, and I mean darkly hilarious part about this, is that these guys escaped a fucking repressive apartheid war zone regime, you know, right. and won the fucking lottery and made their way to the shores, you know, uh, with the Statue of Liberty and the beacon of fucking freedom, you know, and then to be thrown under the jail uh, here. You know, under you know, on secret evidence and secret, you know, anonymous experts and shit. I mean, it is you. You just you could just choke on it on some level, right? right? I mean, yeah. it's it's the the irony is so thick that I you know even irony poisoned me can't really process it. Um, so when you ask like what the answer was, the answer was they should have come here and they should have never looked back. You know, their crime was to feel a sense of obligation to the people back at home uh, and to and to honor sort of the teachings of their religion, uh, that there was that there was valor and and goodness uh, in charity. Right. And I mean, that's what really happened here. I mean, like and it's funny because so many of us come over and I don't know, again, jump in. Uh, and they have this ridiculous uh, Tim. I mean, you know, like uh, I think Latino. Uh, there's a, there's an immigrant experience where you come over and you you pull up the ladder behind you and fuck everybody. And yeah. I'm an American now. Um, these guys didn't exactly do that, and therein lied the seeds. Therein lay the seeds of their destruction. Yeah, that's where they fucked up. Yeah, yeah, right. and I think yeah. that 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 message was heard loud and clear in I think across the country in Muslim communities and in immigrant communities everywhere right I mean as mm-hmm. um, as a you know sort of young teenager while this was happening in Dallas you you can't you can't overstate how um, deeply afraid uh, you know the, the community became 
because because your your literal charitable works legitimate mm-hmm. charitable works were now going to be scrutinized and that you could go to you're going to die in prison because of it right yeah. and so uh, you know when you're you, you can't um you can't do you know your homework anymore and and sort of uh, google like the history of your country and be proud talking about your country you know at school or um or or any of that stuff or at work talking about you you know, just bringing up these sort of what what before you would have thought of as kind of innocuous, just regular, you know, stories or identifiers or, you know, just uh, things about your background um, mm-hmm. because it was so clear that the government was what the government was saying, which was you are supposed to leave that behind. So I guess, again, the broader lesson for those of you who aren't uh, Muslims or Arabs or whatever is don't believe in anything. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I think, I mean, just to hit on I mean, that was a really powerful ending, but safe. just to hit on it, I I think, you know, it's going towards, like, the, the far right right now, and it's like, you know, if your uncle's yeah. ever done any of that stuff, yeah. tell him to leave the country. Cut him, start, cut start, him the fuck Tell him to go to Palestine and become Muslim. Start <laughs> burning your pepes that. now. <laughs> <laughs> وانا ماشي في الاراضي ماضي وانا هارب من الماضي ماضي وانا راضي فيكي راضي راضي ايوه وانا راضي فيكي هي وانا راضي فيكي راضي راضي سنين تشتي غيوم وكل مره وينبل غراضي شكرا على العموم استنوا الالبوم ومن اليوم بنحط شواط ولك طلع فيش غير حلول وسط اتصل على كل حدا بعرف قل له آسف أنا كنت غلط بس تعرفني كيف بنشعت بس آخر فترة جد بالنار عم بنشعت فالمهم اتخرجت بالمستشفى عم تشتغل ونحكي بلا زعل أنا اشتقت للستركشر لأني من أحلامي أنا انتكت وقلب شغل بس بحب الغنى الباقي كله تعب في كثير منيح بس تقيل العاطل بلا زعل وبلا دلع نشكر الله جد وانا ماشي في الاراضي ماضي وانا هارب من الماضي ماضي وانا راضي فيكي راضي راضي ايوه وانا راضي فيكي هي وانا راضي فيكي راضي راضي سنين تشتي غيوم وكل مره وينبل غراضي شكرا على العموم استنوا الالبوم ومن اليوم بنحط شواط ولك طلع فيش غير حلول وسط تصل على البنت قلها كنت معك ولد أنا آسف على كل ما بدر كنت خايف أتطلع ورا المهم انت كيفك رجعتي على البلد كيف الأهل أنا نقلت على الله وصار لي سنة كثير الفرق عن عمان بس للموسيقى الوضع دهب حولي ناس مناح بس هذا أخذ وقت للأسف كثير غريب كيف من الغرفة والريتالين لحفلات وناس كثير أنا صراحة مخ انسرق وتعبت فترة بس هسا كله مرق وأنا منيح كثير أخيرا تعرفت على حدا يخلي إجري على الأرض وأنا ماشي في الأراضي ماضي وأنا هارب من الماضي ماضي وأنا راضي فيك راضي راضي وأنا راضي فيك هي وأنا راضي فيك راضي وتعدي سنين تشتي غيوم وكل مرة وينبلغ